listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoakchurch.net. guys for coming and worshiping with us this morning. I do believe it's going to be a good uh, Sunday. As we transition here into a time of opening up the Word, I invite you to open up to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Uh, It's probably not a book that you normally go to in your devotional reading uh, in the Bible, and so feel free to use your table of contents if you need to, or on your Bible app. Uh, There's no shame in taking a moment in that. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I always invite you to to bring a Bible, and and just uh, there's something about opening it up uh, physically uh, that shows God, I'm here to listen, I'm here to discern and and learn what you want for my life. But if you don't have one this morning, we would love to give you one, uh, but as always, it'll be on the screen behind me. So we're going to be at 1 Chronicles chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. So let's read this together as the church. It says, King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people, I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you're not going to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader and from the tribe of Judah he chose my family. And from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all of Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever, if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and my laws, as is being done even to this day. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and all the assembly of the Lord and all in the hearing of of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. Verse 9, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So like I said, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, my name is James Jandell. I'm one of the pastors here at this church, if you don't know me. And uh, we're going to dive into the last week of our series, An Anointed Mess, in which we've been following uh, King David and, and sort of his life and learning from his life. And before we get there this morning, I want to share a bit of Houston folklore uh, that you may not know about. And it comes by a man of the name Charles Fondau. Now, in 1980, Charles Fondau decided that he wanted to build a home. And uh, he was a Houstonian, and so he bought a property off the Southwest Freeway, off of 59, outside the medical center, and he bought a property there. And uh, before this property was owned by some other people, it was an apartment complex for a while. I think it was a daycare center for a while. I think it was uh, probably a house, a 
of personal residence for a while, and yet uh, he took this property, he built it, and he, and he decided to build a home there. Uh, now, it wasn't a normal do-it-yourself renovation project because Charles was not a normal do-it-yourself kind of guy. He was a traveler, so he traveled all around the world. He traveled to Russia, Europe, all around the United States, and he used all of his travels from all these exotic places to help inspire him to build this house. And so what started out as sort of a normal renovation turned into a five-story, sprawling, story, uh, fairy tale castle that had towers, parapets, uh, uh, decks on the roof, amazing things inside of it. And so he had this vision. And he wasn't a, a personal builder himself. He was a retired nurse. Uh, he had no building experience, but he jumped in there and he pretty much built the house himself. When they interviewed him as his house was going up, because it was kind of an oddity in the neighborhood, right? All the other houses around him looked very normal. And then he was building this sort of five-story fairy tale house. And they asked him about his progress. And he said, well, I fell off the roof five times. I broke about four ribs. He said that he cracked his pelvis and tore a rotator cuff. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds bad, right? He estimated that he spent over $300,000 putting in on this house. And in fact, he got so obsessed with it that he spent the last 30 years of his life building and renovating this house. And I, I mean, he put his heart and soul into it all the way until his untimely death in 2011 when he died at the age of 65. Uh, so after that, some investors got together, they bought the property, and they were asking, what should we do with this? Should we tear down this man's life work, and should we put up an apartment complex? Obviously, that would be profitable for them. Uh, or should we keep it and try to do something with it? And they decided to keep it, and they decided to renovate it a little bit, and they turned it into something called the Houston Towers, which is sort of a bed and breakfast uh, here in Houston. And my wife, Sarah, and I had a chance to stay at this place. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of it. As you can see, uh, I don't I don't know if you can see it that well, but it has towers, it has a deck on the roof. Uh, the inside is almost as fairy tale as the outside. Imagine this house two doors down from your house. This is how odd it looks. And inside there are like grandfather clocks, there are Persian rugs, Persian chess sets, there are uh, amazing things inside. There's an elevator that you can get in and takes you up to the roof and you can step out and you can check out the Houston skyline. It was amazing to hear about this man's uh, obsession with this house over the last 30 years of his life. And as we look at this picture, I wonder this morning, have you ever had an obsession, right? Maybe it was a passion that turned into an obsession, right? You had a hobby that turned into a passion that turned into a life's work, Maybe for you, you had an idea that turned into a business, or maybe it was a person. You had obsession with a person, and now they're sitting next to you as your spouse. I think we all have had obsessions in our life, and sometimes those obsessions last for a day or a week or a year, but sometimes the obsession just takes you over, and it lasts for an entire lifetime, like it did for Charles Fondell. This morning, as we talk about David, uh, he developed an obsession toward the end of his life. And in fact, David, over the last 30 years of his life, developed an obsession. He wanted a legacy, as if being king, as if being king over Israel, as if, uh, at the very least, uh, destroying all the enemies of Israel and keeping them at bay, creating peace in the kingdom, as if that wasn't enough. He said, I want to have a different legacy. I want to build a temple to God. And if you've read any part of the Old Testament, I'm sure you've heard about the temple, right? You probably have opened up portions of the Old Testament. 
You know what I'm talking about. You pull it out and it starts talking about how big the room should be. It should be this many feet wide. It should be this many feet tall. It should be this many feet long. It should have this many Levite priests in it. It should have this much gold in it. It should have these many musicians in it. And let's be honest this morning, you shouldn't lie in church. You probably skimmed over those passages. Have you skimmed over a passage this morning uh, talking about the temple of God? If you have, you're not alone. I have as well. Even if you go in the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus has walked into a temple, right? You remember the scene? He walks into a temple. He overthrows the tables. He's very angry. He says, this place is supposed to be a place of prayer, yet you have made it a den of robbers. If you have read any part of the Bible, you've probably heard about this concept of the temple. But I wonder this morning, can you answer why the temple is so central in the Old Testament? Can you answer that question? How about this? What does a building in the Old Testament have to do with you and I as 21st century followers of God in America? Does it have anything to do with us? How about this? How does David's obsession with building a temple for God correlate a thousand years later with Jesus's obsession for his life and work? Because there's a connection. Do you know what that is? And if you don't this morning, then I'm glad that you're here because in order to to learn that, we're going to have to travel back to the year 1000 BC to a fledgling nation called Israel. And just as a sidestep today, I know you probably didn't come to church to like learn something. Like, you you know, you come to church and you know I'm going to tell you to love your neighbor and to love God, but you probably don't come to church thinking that you're going to get some Old Testament knowledge dropped on you. That's exactly what I'm doing today. Is Is everyone cool with learning something today? Okay, we got some people cool with learning something today. So jump to First Chronicles 28, uh, verses 1 and 2. We're going to jump in, learn a little bit of Old Testament knowledge and, and why that's important for us in our life. So let's read the first two verses this morning. It says, King David rose to his feet. Let's just stop right there. So David's at the end of his life, right? And he knows he's dying. He knows that his son Solomon is going to succeed him as king. Uh, He knows he's at the end of his life. So he gathers all the people of Israel together, right? They're an established nation. He's been reigning for 40 years. He knows he's dying. He gets everyone together and he says this to them. He says, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. So David was obsessed with building a temple where God would dwell permanently. That's what he wanted his life's work to be. You see, David felt something that we all feel in our life and that most people across the world feel even if they don't admit it. And that's this distance between us and God. We all feel that. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we feel distant from God. How many people in here have felt moments in their life where it feels like God's far away, that he's not with you? David uh, felt that at times in his life. And so David thought, well, if I build a temple to the Lord, then God will dwell with us. He'll be with the people to bless us. He'll be with us. Because when you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that oftentimes God seems to come and go, right? He appears in a burning bush to someone and he's there for a while and then he goes away. And then he appears on a mountaintop, right? Look, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's, it's God. He's up there. Let's go worship him up on the mountaintop. But then he goes away. And then it says that he'll appear as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then he'll go away. And I don't know about you, but it's hard to develop a relationship with a burning bush. Go try it sometime, right? And so David said, I want a place where God can dwell, where we know that he's going to be at. We can go worship 
him and we could be with him. That was his life's vision. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted his legacy to be. So he wanted to put an end to this idea that God is sort of in all these places. Let's bring him down to a temple and let's worship him there. But he actually wasn't the first person to try to do that. Do you know who the first person was who tried to build a place for God? It's actually Moses. Moses was the first person to try to do that. Uh, If you go back a few hundred years, you'll find Moses uh, leading the people out of Egypt, right? The Ten Commandments, Moses. Let my people go, Moses. He tries to build a place where they could worship the Lord. And it was called the Tent of Meeting, a.k.a. the Tabernacle. I told you guys you were going to learn something this morning. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Tent of Meeting. And I want you to turn to your other neighbor, say a little bit louder, say, Tabernacle. All right, you're learning something this morning. This is Old Testament stuff. This is good. In Exodus 33, verse 7, it says, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so there's this idea that that Moses wanted to have a place where the people could come and worship. You want to bring a sacrifice to the Lord? Come to the tent of meeting. You want to pray to the Lord? Come to the tent of meeting. Uh, Moses himself would meet with the Lord. And in fact, he would meet with the Lord. And when he left, his face would be glowing and the people would be freaked out, right? Because he had met with the Lord in this place. So the tent of meeting was a temporary place of worship that the Israelites built as they were wandering in the desert. And I think I actually have a photograph of what it looked like right here. Yeah, someone took an actual picture in 1300 BC of what it looked like. And uh, this is the tent. I'm glad some of you guys got that. no Nikons in 1300 BC, but this, this is the idea, right? You see the Israelites, they're camped off in the distance, and you have this tent of meeting that's outside the camp, right? This is where they would meet with the Lord, and this worked for a while, right? So they would uh, put the tent up when they camped, they would take the tent down when they left, and they would wander to a different place, maybe near a stream or something like that. They would pitch all their tents, and then they would put up the tent of meeting, and that worked. The problem was the tent of meeting was temporary, It was never meant to be a permanent structure, right? It's literally, it's just a tent, you know? Just like buy it from Academy, put it up. This is how the Lord says it's supposed to be. And then they take it down, but it's not permanent. So once King David established the kingdom, right? Once all the enemies of Israel are are pushed aside, they have a kingdom. David is king. He says, "I, I don't want to pitch this little Academy tent. I want a big temple for the Lord. I want a place where God can dwell permanently, right? So this was his life's mission to build this place. Literally in verse 2 in our passage, you'll find he says, I want a place that can be a footstool for our God, right? Literally, you get this picture of God kicking up his feet, right? God, stay a while, kick up your feet, be with us. This is what we want of you. But look in verse 3 of our passage. It says, but God said to me, this is David, he's continuing to talk, He says, God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior who has shed blood. Now skip down to verse 6. And he said to me, this is God still speaking, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I'll establish his kingdom forever if, if he is unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. 
So God drops sort of a hammer on David, and he says, David, you're not going to be the one to build the temple, right? Want, want, want. He wanted to do this. He wanted this to be his life's work. And God says, guess what, David? It's not going to be you. And I'm not sure how David may have felt uh, when he first heard that from the Lord. I don't know how you feel when you're passed over for a promotion. It doesn't feel great. I don't know how you feel when you were in high school and the crush that you had was interested in your friend. I would imagine that's a little bit how it felt. I don't know if you ever feel that someone else is fulfilling your legacy, your obsession, what you want to do. I imagine that's probably how David felt. And yet he doesn't get angry. David doesn't get angry, but in fact, he actually gets excited because the Lord says, it's going to happen. David didn't care that it was going to be him or not him. He was excited it was going to be his son. So God said, your son Solomon will be the one to do it, and I'll be with him as long as he keeps my commands. So David's dream becomes a reality. He builds, Solomon builds the temple. David has all the plans. He gives them to Solomon. Solomon builds the temple, which is why you often hear the phrase Solomon's temple, because Solomon was the one who oversaw the building of the temple. And so I think I have an actual rendition here of what the temple may have looked like. Uh, This is not going to be a photograph once it gets up there. It's not a photograph, just a rendition of what it looks like. And in the temple, or outside the temple, you'll find that there's some courtyards, And in the outer courtyard, you would have the place in which all the people could gather. Whether you were an Israelite, whether you were not an Israelite, you could go into that outer courtyard and you can worship the Lord there. But then there was sort of an inner courtyard. And this is where only the priests and the people of the Israelites offering sacrifices could go, right? And that's where they did a lot of their religious duties. And then the inside of the temple, you had sort of three sections. Uh, You had the portico, which was the place in which they would prepare some of the sacrifices. Uh, You had the main hall, which is where they did a lot of their religious priestly duties. And then at the end, you had something called the inner chamber, which was called the Holy of Holies. Turn to your neighbor and say, Holy of Holies. That was enthusiastic enough. I'll take that one. All right, so Holy of Holies. And this was the place that was sacred, right? And you may not have known this before, but you have heard of the Holy of Holies. When you read, uh, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, when you read Jesus dying on the cross, it says that the temple of the temp- or the the curtain of the temple was what torn in two. That's exactly what they're talking about here. This this divide between the holy of holies and the main hall was torn in two. And there's this idea that that there used to be a separation between God and the people, but now there's no separation. So anytime you read that in the Gospels, this is what it's talking about, right? And so uh, you have this inner chamber that would be the Holy of Holies, and only one person could go in there. The high priest could go in there once a year, and that was only after sacrifices were made for his sin. Sacrifices were made for the people's sin, and he had to get his personal heart right, because if he had something wrong in his heart, uh, he would probably die as he met the holy God. And so Holy of Holies was where God would appear to the high priest. And so Solomon makes it happen. Solomon builds the temple, and it was an amazing work. They estimate that probably the building of the temple and all the value of the things inside of it probably was around three to six billion of today's dollars. So that gives you an idea of how amazing this temple was. It took about seven years to complete. It took about 30,000 Israelites to build it, 150,000 Canaanites. You had Phoenician artists and people and craftsmen from all around the world would build this temple and would go into it. And it was good for a while. 
Certainly this temple was a lot better than the tent of meeting that Moses met in, right? It's a lot better than that. It's a permanent place, but it had some problems. And the first of those problems is it wasn't for everyone, right? Only Israelites could go into the inner court. I want you to raise, this, raise your hand this morning if you are not an Israelite. Should be everybody, all right? So none of us could go into the temple. So this place that was supposed to be where God and man could meet together excluded a large portion of the population. Number two, in order to get in the actual place where God would be, the Holy of Holies, you had to be the high priest. No one in here is a high priest. I'm a pastor. I could not go in there. And so there's this idea that God would appear and, and all of us sort of have back row seats, right? We're in the back of the auditorium and then the front row seats are, are reserved just for the high priest. And so we wouldn't be able to do that. Third, it's supposed to be a place where God and men meet. But something happened along the way to where the closer you got to the temple, the more aware of your sin you would be. Right? You're supposed to feel connected with God. You're supposed to feel close to God. And the closer you got, the more distant God felt. Right? All these sacrifices happening, all this unworthiness, all this stuff saying, I am a sinner, I'm different than God. So the temple did not fulfill what it was supposed to fulfill. And then lastly, probably the biggest problem, no-brainer, the temple gets destroyed. <laughs> Right? It's hard to have a permanent place where God would dwell when the temple gets destroyed. It actually got destroyed twice. In the year 586 BC, the Babylonians came, ransacked the temple, destroyed it. And then in the year 70 AD, they built another temple, which they called Herod's temple. And this is the one that Jesus would have walked in. That got destroyed in the year 70 AD. So sort of a no-brainer question, how is a temple supposed to be the permanent place where people meet God when it's not even permanent? You can see the problem here. There's a definite problem. Enter Jesus, right? Jesus busts onto the scene. And Jesus has a similar obsession with David, except Jesus, I'm not going to build a temple for the people. I'm going to be a temple for the people. I'm going to be the place where God and man meets together forever. And so you can see uh, in the New Testament how Jesus says, I am the temple of God. Jesus knew that there were problems with the temple. He knew that not everyone could benefit from it, and God wanted everyone to benefit from a relationship with him. Jesus knew that people could tear it down, and Jesus wanted it to be permanent. And Jesus knew that the temple reminded us of how sinful we were, and how bad we are, and how filthy we are in comparison to God. So Jesus knew there was problems. And so there's this theological idea in which God takes the temple— and Jesus says, I'm going to move the temple, not from this building, but into myself. And that's what we see on the cross, the place where holy God and sinful man meets together. Right? That's why the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There's no break in our relationship with God anymore. In Jesus, we have the temple. Jesus was like, you can't get near God? Well, guess what? I'm God. Come down to you. Jesus said, you're sinful and you're messed up? He says, I'll take care of that. All atone for your sin with one sacrifice. Jesus said, evil enemies trying to destroy you, I'll destroy them. Jesus says, death trying to keep you down, I'll hold death down. Jesus said, I am the temple that David wanted. And so Jesus was telling the Jews, and he's always trying to tell us, don't put your hope, don't put your faith, don't put your trust in a building. 
Don't put it in a religious system. Don't put it in your good works, right? Buildings can be destroyed. Religious systems fail you. Your good works are not good enough. Jesus says, I'm the temple, which is why he says, I'm going to be with you always, right? Because that's what David wanted. David wanted something in which God would be with the people always. And that's why Jesus is always saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, kind of like the temple did. He says, I'm Emmanuel, God with you, just like you hoped the temple would be. He says, I'm going to cleanse you of sin once and for all, unlike the temple in which you had to come with thousands of sacrifices every time you came and it reminded you of how sinful you were. And lastly, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to be with you in a way that the temple never could. See, Jesus accomplished what David never dreamed was possible. He made you and I the temple of God. He made you and I the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Do you understand what that means? For thousands of years, or at least for dozens of centuries, the people of Israel only knew God in the place of a temple. And then Jesus comes and reorients everything and says, no, guess what? It's not a building, it's you. God dwells within you and I. And I can tell you, David would have never dreamed that possible. If King David were sitting in the front row of this chapel at White Oak Baptist Church and he heard me say that you and I are the temple of God, he would get up, he would shake his sandals at me and blaspheme me and walk out of the room, right? He would be amazed that I would be saying this. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus because he was saying the same thing. So if you feel distant from God this morning, don't think that because you're inside a church building that you've gotten any closer to God. But remember that God lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I believe that so much that I believe that when David tells Solomon how to build a temple, that he didn't know this, but he was telling us how to be a temple. Right? It would have blown his mind, but I believe it's true. Look at verse 9 and 10, the last verses of our passage this morning. David says to his son Solomon, as he's about to build this temple, David's about to die, and he's telling Solomon some last and final words. He says, And you, my son, acknowledge the God of your father. Serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. David doesn't realize it, but he's giving us advice on how to be a temple. So we're going to look at David's prophetic advice on how we could be a temple of God, how we can dwell with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the first of those is we must know God personally. Verse 9, he says, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. David is saying, Solomon, it's not enough for me to follow God. you got to follow God. It's not enough for God to, to commune with me. You have to make this relationship with God your own. Solomon, you've got to know him. Don't accept hand-me-downs when it comes to your walk with God. You can't just know about him, right? You've got people who are saying, man, just because my parents follow God, I guess that makes me a Christian. 
Or you got people saying, oh, well, my spouse has a relationship with God. I guess that means I have a relationship with God. But here you have David telling Solomon, know God personally. Don't rely on someone else. And don't even rely on past experiences you've had with God. It's all about the present moment. Do you know God personally now? Number two, serve God wholeheartedly. Verse 9, he says, Serve the Lord your God with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. There are two temptations when it comes to serving God. One is to serve God half-heartedly. Right? So serve God half-heartedly. We give him the bare minimum. We do the bare minimum. We read our chapter of the Bible for today. We go to the church on Sunday morning. We check the boxes off and then we're done. The problem is the Bible doesn't say love the Lord your God with half your heart, half your soul, half your mind, half your strength. It says love him with everything. With all that you have. Serve the Lord with a single-hearted devotion. So that's number one. Number two, serve God. Some of us serve God conditionally. Right? We, we, we say, God, we have the conditions with which we are going to serve you. And it's amazing, this fact that sometimes we come to God, and I have this image, I don't know if you guys relate to this or not, but you have this image of like Google or Apple, right? And, and they've got 100 pages of terms and conditions uh, for, for accepting abuse, and we go to God and say, God, as long as you accept these terms and conditions in my life, I will serve you. And God says, no, 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 I'm the one who sets the terms and conditions for how you serve. And I want you to serve me wholeheartedly with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart. If we're the temple of God, then we relate to the Old Testament temple. And God had specifications for how it was built and for how it was served. And in the same way, if we are temple of God, God has specifications for how we serve him in this life. Number three, remember you're chosen to be God's sanctuary. I think this is probably the most important verse in this whole passage. Verse 10. Consider now. He says, Solomon, consider. For the Lord has chosen you to build a house as a sanctuary. Have you considered the fact that you are temple of God? Right? You're more than a house for God. Your body is a sacred place. Your body is a place of peace in a chaotic world. Your body is a tabernacle of holiness in a filthy generation. Your body is a residence of light in a world gone dark. You you don't go to tabernacle. You don't go to the temple. You don't go to church. You are temple. You are tabernacle. You are church. This is what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And therefore, what we see and what we do and how we speak and what we put in front of our eyes and what we put in front of our ears matters in this life. Serve the Lord God with wholehearted devotion and consider how the Lord dwells inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, be strong and do the work. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and the fact that Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, should lead you into confidence. Whereas the priest of the Old Testament would sort of cower before the Lord and under the sacrifices, the Bible says that we should enter the throne of grace with confidence, that God is with us, that Christ's sacrifice is good enough for us. And you know the purpose of the temple is to do what? Worship. You know the purpose of our temple? To worship 
the Lord. And if Jesus knows anything about the temple, if you recall the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, you know that from time to time we have to cleanse our temples. And that's what John talked about last week, repentance, confession, getting right with the Lord. And we have to regularly do that in our life because our temple can become corrupt. So we go to the Lord, we ask Him for forgiveness, we repent of sin, and we cleanse the temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. So David charges Solomon with all these things. And I think that God charges us with all these things to follow him in this life and and to follow this sort of uh, honoring of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament. So as we draw to a close this morning, I want us to turn our attention for a moment back to Charles Fondau. Uh, you remember the guy who built the fairy tale uh, mansion, the fairy tale house that Sarah and I got to stay at? And he had a dream that became an obsession, right? And that obsession became a lifelong project, a lifelong journey in his, house, or in his life. And uh, I remember uh, one of the final interviews that they had with him. I found this, uh, I think it was in the Chronicle or in one of the papers here in Houston. Uh, They asked him about his work and they asked him why it was so meaningful to him. And he said, this house is the love of my life. I don't know how to live in a house that's finished. And I think in the same way you had David develop this obsession. He says, I want to build a house for God. Right? He says, I have a personal relationship with God, but I, I want it so that everyone can have a personal relationship with God. And so he has this obsession to build a temple that dominates the last three decades of his life. And as we think about that this morning, I wonder for you, what's your one magnificent obsession? Can you name it? I think sometimes uh, we all have obsessions. Maybe for you, your obsession is the outcome of your kids and how they're going to turn out. But as that, as it comes with that and as it comes with other things in our life, any obsession that we have that is not centered around God and around His glory will ultimately drive us crazy. All right, you obsess over how your kids are going to turn out and you're going to spend the rest of your life worrying about how they turn out. Maybe your obsession is your job or the success of your business. And if that's your obsession, you're going to spend the rest of your life worrying that it's going to fail. Maybe for you, your obsession is something else. Quality of life, uh, the riches of the world, contentment in this life. And if that's the case, you'll never be content with the life that God gave you. The Bible says that we are temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if you make me the object of your obsession, you'll find abundant life. You'll find joy. You'll find peace. You'll find happiness. And God will be with you forever. You are tabernacle. So that means your heart is a place where God is constantly cleansing. And your heart is a place that God is constantly forgiving. And your heart is a place that God has decided to dwell in forever. From now till the day you die and even beyond, God promises to dwell with you. And I don't know about you, but I think that calls for some worship. Amen? 
3,000 years ago, David stood in front of the people and he exhorted them to worship the Lord, their God. And now in the year 2018, I stand in front of you and I ask you, are we also the people of God, yes or no? Someone say it, are we the people of God? Yes, we are the people of God. Are we the temple of God? Is sin forgiven? Is Christ risen? Is God with us? Are we the people of God? Then worship the Lord this morning. Such a long journey from the Old Testament. This idea of temple, this idea that, that, that David wanted God to dwell with the people permanently. And Jesus busts on the scene and he makes that happen. And here we are today and he's still with us. Jesus is king over our lives. And even more than that, he dwells in our hearts forever. I love you guys and I exhort you to remember that, not just this morning, but also for the rest of this week and for the rest of your lives. God is with you, permanently dwelling among us, for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for what your son has done to make us into the temple of God. Lord, so much sacrifice on his part. Whereas in the Old Testament, Lord, people had to continually offer sacrifices just to meet with you, Lord, and your holiness. Christ has busted onto the scene and offered himself as a single sacrifice. That's good not just once, not just good for one sin, not just good for ten sins, but good for all the sins of the world. So in our response, Lord, I pray that we would live holy lives before you. I pray that we would not trust in a building, not trust in a religious system, not trust in our own works, but that we would constantly trust in you, walking with you in this life as you dwell within us in our hearts. We love you, Lord, and it's the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.